equivalent today of more than $400 million. The Osage were considered the wealthiest people per capita in the world. Lo and behold, the New York Weekly Outlook exclaimed, the Indian, instead of starving to death, enjoys a steady income that turns bankers green with envy. The public had become transfixed by the tribe's prosperity, which belied the images of American Indians that could be traced back to the brutal first contact with whites, the original sin from which the country was born. Reporters tantalized their readers with stories about the plutocratic Osage and the red millionaires with their brick and terracotta mansions and chandeliers, with their diamond rings and fur coats and chauffeured cars. One writer marveled at Osage girls who attended the best boarding schools and wore sumptuous French clothing as if une très jolie demoiselle of the Paris boulevards had inadvertently strayed into this little reservation town. At the same time, Reporters seized upon any signs of the traditional Osage way of life, which seemed to stir in the public's mind visions of wild Indians. One article noted a circle of expensive automobiles surrounding an open campfire where the bronzed and brightly blanketed owners are cooking meat in the primitive style. Another documented a party of Osage arriving at a ceremony for their dances in a private airplane, a scene that outrivals the ability of the fictionist to portray. Summing up the public's attitude toward the Osage, the Washington Star said, That lament, lo, the poor Indian, might appropriately be revised to, Ho, the rich redskin. Gray Horse was one of the reservation's older settlements. These outposts, including Fairfax, a larger neighboring town of nearly 1,500 people, and Pawhuska, the Osage capital, with a population of more than 6,000, seemed like fevered visions. The streets clamored with cowboys, fortune seekers, bootleggers, soothsayers, medicine men, outlaws, U.S. marshals, New York financiers, and oil magnates. Automobiles sped along paved horse trails, the smell of fuel overwhelming the scent of the prairies. Juries of crows peered down from telephone wires. There were restaurants advertised as cafes and opera houses and polo grounds. Although Molly didn't spend as lavishly as some of her neighbors did, she had built a beautiful rambling wooden house in Greyhorse, near her family's old lodge of lashed poles, woven mats, and bark. She owned several cars and had a staff of servants. The Indians potlickers, as many settlers derided these migrant workers. The servants were often black or Mexican, and in the early 1920s, a visitor to the reservation expressed contempt at the sight of even whites performing all the menial tasks about the house to which no Osage would stoop.
Molly was one of the last people to see Anna before she vanished. That day, May 21st, Molly had risen close to dawn, a habit ingrained from when her father used to pray every morning to the sun. She was accustomed to the chorus of meadowlarks and sandpipers and prairie chickens, now overlaid with the pock-pocking of drills pounding the earth. Unlike many of her friends, who shunned Osage clothing, Molly wrapped an Indian blanket around her shoulders. She also didn't style her hair in a flapper bob, but instead let her long black hair flow over her back, revealing her striking face with its high cheekbones and big brown eyes. Her husband, Ernest Burkhart, rose with her. A 28-year-old white man, he had the stock handsomeness of an extra in a Western picture show.